Hey there, it's Mark Coffin here, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of the Offscript Podcast, where we'll be exploring the stories of some of the people who have uh, run, and in some cases won, elected office as Nova Scotians living with disabilities. All right, here's this week's episode. If you haven't seen the pictures from Kevin Murphy's first days as Speaker of the House, you should take a moment to check them out. There are three pictures, and Kevin is in two of them, and each of those pictures stands in contrast to an archetypal image that those of us who have spent some time around Province House would be familiar with. I'll tell you how to find them shortly, but for now, let me tell you about the first picture. It takes place outside of the chamber, and it's a picture of a media scrum. When you walk into the foyer during a busy day at Province House, you'll often see a media scrum. There are a dozen or so reporters with their hands extended, pushing microphones into the faces of whomever has convinced them that they have something to say that's worth reporting on. It usually happens at eye level or close to it, reporters on one side and their interview subject is on the other, and most of us see only a fraction of the scrum, usually from the angle of one of the cameras. But the picture I'm talking about shows the other side. It appears to be taken from close to the floor. What you can't see is Kevin Murphy's face. What you can see is the faces of at least seven journalists from the press gallery beaming with ear-to-ear smiles. These are people that are generally not known for showing their pearly whites. But it was a big moment. Kevin Murphy, a rookie liberal MLA from the Eastern Shore, had just been elected Speaker of the House of Assembly, and at that moment, he was the first and only Speaker in the entire British Commonwealth that would go on to serve from a wheelchair. Kevin Murphy is a paraplegic. The reporter's smiling faces frame Kevin's silhouette. Kevin, seated in his wheelchair, wearing a suit and a top hat, staring up at his very first media scrum. Probably the first and perhaps the only time a newly elected politician in Nova Scotia was met with such a warm welcome. I was injured at age 14 uh, playing hockey. I was just a regular kid from a regular family. I mean, I went from being an athlete who dreamt of playing hockey for the Montreal Canadiens one day to somebody who couldn't even sit up straight or feed myself. And, um, you know, you, you figure things out as you go. But when I had my accident, of course, you know, you're dealing with a new reality and the limitations are harsh and they're cruel. Um, and I don't share that to garner sympathy, but that's the reality of it, right? You know, one day I was flying down the ice, and the next day I'm laying in a hospital bed, not unable to move. The way Kevin tells the rest of his story, it sounds like if it weren't for his accident, he wouldn't have had nearly as much experience in practicing advocacy. And if it weren't for practicing advocacy for himself and other people, he might not have considered a career in politics at all. So you you quickly learn to advocate for yourself. Obviously your needs are different and you figure out how to to get the things you need. I've always been an advocate uh, for for persons with disabilities. I mean, that just stems uh, the old cliche, necessity is the mother of invention. So um, some some things are available and others aren't. And uh, uh, the process of learning how, how to speak up and to identify that, gee, uh, the things that uh, are not in place that would potentially benefit me um, would benefit a lot of other people as well. So in learning how to advocate, uh, I was injured in grade nine, so it basically started with uh, uh, trying to figure out how I was going to get back to school in grade 10 in a, in a building that was 50-odd years old that had steps everywhere. Uh, 
that was a learning experience for me and my family, uh, being from a small town in Nova Scotia. Oh, the, uh, the, to skip ahead a few years, I went from my local high school to St. Mary's and, and again uh, had my eyes opened up uh, moving from rural Nova Scotia to the big city of Halifax. And I thought, uh, gosh, there's all kinds of people with all kinds of different uh, uh, kinds of disabilities um, in, in and around the city of Halifax. And the things that I need, like the door opener to get from one building to another at St. Mary's or a, a walkway that wasn't paved, uh, that I couldn't navigate with my wheelchair, that you know, once I spoke up and asked for those and uh, those changes were put in place that I quickly saw that lots of other people were benefiting from uh, from that. So that kind of led me down the road of, of um, you know, I guess at some point in the, in the, in the future, looking at politics as an option. One of the things uh, that was uh, a strong consideration for me uh, going back to my decision to put my name on the ballot to seek uh, an elected office or an elected position, in this case a provincial MLA, was the desire to, to take my own experience as a person with a disability over the last 32 years and uh, translate what I learned or attempt to translate what I learned and the, 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 the little baby steps of success that, uh, that I've achieved uh, you know, for, to benefit not only myself but other people with disabilities through advocacy work and my involvement with uh, organizations like the Canadian Paraplegic Association, Independent Living Nova Scotia. Oh, there's probably many jurisdictions throughout the world that uh, a person with a disability, for all kinds of reasons, uh, external to their own choosing, just would not be able to put their name on a ballot. So, Just before I was elected, uh, myself and a group of other persons with disabilities founded the James McGregor Stewart Society. And one of our first projects that we took on uh, probably about five years ago, we started writing letters to, uh, to the government of the day. Uh, pointing out that uh, MLA's constituency offices by virtue of the House of Assembly Management Commission regulations were exempt from the Nova Scotia Building Code uh, which would, re would have required them to be barrier free like every other building that was newly built. All kinds of loopholes and, and quite an extensive story. Kevin pointed out that he could not visit his own MLA's office on the Eastern Shore because there was a staircase at the front door of the building. And uh, nothing personal against the MLA of the day. He was very friendly and accommodating and said, you know, I'll meet you at a coffee shop, I'll come to your home, whatever. But the point is that I could not, as a, as a Nova Scotian with a physical disability, could not visit my own elected representative's office that I was paying for with my tax dollars ultimately. So you begin to see the flaw, and it took us two years of letter writing um, to get this on the radar, again, of the government of the day, and uh, it was my predecessor, uh, Speaker Gordy Goss, who speakers are responsible for, cons uh, for all aspects of MLA's operations, including the constituency offices and the, and the rules and policies that, that MLA's live by. 
uh, we got Gordy's ear, <clears throat> and he quickly, when he realized this, this kind of loophole, uh, he, he swiftly moved to close the loophole. So with a rule change, um, and ironically, there was an election. In the, in, uh, in the meantime, I had decided to put my name on the ballot, and lo and behold, I was the next speaker uh, who was tasked with actually putting that, uh, carrying out that rule change. So uh, Now, Kevin didn't try and take credit for this decision. It really does sound like a relay race-like effort where Kevin and the other citizens he was working with handed the baton of barrier-free offices to Gordy as advocates while he was speaker during the last government, and Kevin just ended up being in the right place to receive that baton once he was speaker on the other side. Uh, so one small step but a very significant step in the in the big picture. It is kind of ironic and uh, how it all played out that I was on one side of the fence when we started the advocacy effort and it just turned out that I was on the other side of the fence when the result actually came to, to fruition. So it's very humbling uh, to look back at the history and to understand the role of speaker. This brings us to the second picture that frames Kevin's story. In most legislatures and parliaments that are part of the British Commonwealth, there's a tradition that dates back to the very first parliament in 1300s Britain. The tradition is that he who is elected speaker is dragged unwillingly by the prime minister and opposition party leaders up to the speaker's dais or throne. Even today, the tradition carries on, and newly elected speakers feign disinterest in being dragged to the chair. The reason why, and we'll come back to Kevin's story in a moment, is that the first parliaments were fully subservient to the British crown. And if the monarch wasn't pleased with the decisions of their parliament, the speaker was beheaded. In the first 140 years of parliamentary government in Britain, seven speakers were executed. Since then, we've had over 600 years of that kind of government in Britain and in the 52 Commonwealth nations, including Canada, that have adopted that kind of government. It's the same style of government that places the speaker as the referee for deliberation and debate and decision-making in our province house. For Kevin Murphy... He was the first person in the 623-year history of parliamentary government in all of those countries to serve from a wheelchair. And you can understand where he's coming from when he says, It's very humbling uh, to look back at the history and to understand the role of speaker. The picture you would usually see run alongside the story of the election of a new speaker is one where the premier and opposition leaders pull an unwilling speaker up to the chair. The picture we saw didn't look anything like the traditional photo op. Steve McNeil, Jamie Bailey, and Marie McDonald all have one hand on Kevin's wheelchair. Now, it's Kevin Murphy who is all smiles as he's pushed towards the speaker's dais, a podium that, at the time of his election as speaker, was still inaccessible to him by wheelchair. Being speaker, it's a, it's a big commitment. It's a, it's a tremendous honor and privilege. Uh, although I'm the first speaker with a physical disability, uh, not only in Nova Scotia, but in the Commonwealth, um, the, we have had MLAs uh, previous to me who have had mobility issues. So uh, there was an elevator installed in the building in 1978 to more recently, I think in the late 90s, uh, the public washrooms were renovated and, uh, um, you know, there's still parts of the building that I, I in my wheelchair can access, but all of the working uh, spots in the building I can access and uh, probably the most significant change since I was elected speaker in 2013 is, is the addition of the ramp in the chamber 
itself in the legislative chamber to make the speaker's dais accessible. So uh, This brings us to the third picture, and there's no real story to go along with this one, but who doesn't like a good before and after shot? We posted all three pictures up on the Springtide Twitter feed, and you can check them out at Springtide Co. If you're a first-time Twitter user, you can just go to twitter.com slash springtideco. Kevin doesn't think that changes like this one are in and of themselves going to encourage more people with disabilities to run for public office. When he put his name forward to be speaker, he was of the mindset that if he were elected to the job, accommodations would simply be made so that he could access the places he needed to access. But to get elected and to be successful in political life as a person with a disability, there are many barriers that you would encounter before you even reach Province House. You know, politics is not for everybody, just like you know, being a fireman is not for everybody, right? So my effort is not for a second to suggest that because you're a person with a disability, you're qualified to be an elected representative. But if you are a person with a disability who happens to have the qualifications, the stamina, the skills and ability to bring something to the role of elected representative, then I think there should be nothing that should stand in your way, whether it's some kind of uh, physical, you know, built environment barrier or an attitudinal barrier or anything like that. Kevin and the next two people you'll hear from really emphasize the share of the population who have physical disabilities. Globally, about 15% of people live with physical disabilities. In Nova Scotia, it's somewhere between 18 and 20%. A very significant portion of our population are persons, for various reasons, uh, have some kind of physical limitation. So uh, the spin I like to put on it is, for conversation purposes, uh, let's assume it's 20% of our population. So 20% of a million is 200,000 people. When you begin to think about that in terms of uh, political power, uh, i.e. votes, when you begin to think about that in terms of consumer power, i.e. money that people are spending, and when you uh, consider that, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a full-time mobility-impaired person, so I am one of those roughly 200,000 Nova Scotians that has a physical limitation. Where it gets really interesting is I'm married and I have two children. So where I go, so do they. Where I can't go, neither do they. So again, when you think about that through a consumer lens, if I can't get into your store or your restaurant with my wheelchair, you're not only losing one customer, you're losing three more, so four people. So again, going back to our simple math, a million people in Nova Scotia, 20%, it doesn't take long to figure out that policies, programs, and services that affect persons with physical limitations affect not only those people directly involved statistically, but they involve all Nova Scotians. Um, There is a huge impact. So when we circle back to uh, people holding elected office, the goal of any uh, good democratic system is to get a truly through some which way of of voting, a freely elected uh, process, is to get a truly representative government of the people of which it's intended to serve. And that, you know, that holds true for, for race, for gender, for persons with disabilities, you know, you name it. 
That's Kevin Murphy, a liberal MLA for the Eastern Shore riding and speaker of the 62nd House of Assembly. And the tape you just heard was from an interview he did with my co-host, Sandra Hannebaum, in the summer of 2016. Now, Kevin's currently running for re-election in the riding of Eastern Shore. This will be his second election campaign. His first campaign was in the fall of 2013. Last week, Sandra spoke with Stephen Esty, who also ran in the 2013 election. Here's Sandra and Steve getting to know one another. Tell me about yourself. You were working for Springtide a while ago, and then yeah. not, and then back. Yeah, I, I had a, I had an internship, and then that okay. en- ended. Right. Yeah. 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 Where did you go to school? St. Mary's. Oh yeah. What yeah. you do? Uh, political science. Oh. And, oh yeah. And French. <laughs> Oh, really? Are you Francophone? No. No, no, no. I would tell people I can be deaf in both official languages. Yeah, oh, wow. It's a great skill, really. (laughs) I went to school at SMU. I did my MA in development studies there. Did you you go with Kevin Murphy? Kevin and I were at SMU at the same time. Oh, crazy. I've known him since then. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, after the election... And after things settled down and stuff, I went to Kevin to talk about trying to organize something. And interestingly, you guys should keep That's Stephen Esty, who ran for the NDP, but as you heard, has been friends with Kevin Murphy for longer than either of them have been a part of the parties they now belong to. After the 2013 election, Kevin and Steve worked together to organize a conference called Forum 29, which was an event aimed at getting persons with disabilities involved in politics in Nova Scotia, particularly involved as candidates. The name of the event was inspired by Article 29 of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, an international human rights treaty that Stephen Esty was actually involved in the development of. And Article 29 states that member countries should ensure that people with disabilities can effectively and fully participate in political and public life on an equal basis with others, directly or through freely chosen representatives. I ran in the last provincial election in 2013, but I didn't win, so I'm not an ex-MLA. I'm an ex-wannabe, but it was a very interesting experience. I was approached by the members of the party to consider seeking the nomination. And I was resistant to that. I wasn't... Prior to getting involved in in the 2013 campaign, I had worked as an activist for 20 years at disability rights. And a key part of that work has always been to present myself in a nonpartisan sort of way. My agenda was a human rights focusing on a certain group of folks. Didn't matter if the government was Tory, Liberal, NDP. I work as a consultant in the area of international disability rights. So I work with organizations of people with disabilities here in Nova Scotia, in Canada and around the world, primarily with regard to the implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. I've done that for about the last 15 years. For me, as a deaf person, the experience of door-knocking was a a pretty peculiar one, I think, because, I mean, obviously, what you need to do is you need to talk to people. You're going from door to door in Dartmouth North, where I ran, try to figure out how I'm going to manage that, because while you can tell I'm perfectly able to speak, I can't hear a thing. And lip reading is a very inexact science. If you go and meeting people for the first time and try to have a conversation with them and reading their lips, mm. wind up misinterpreting what they're saying and misunderstanding 
fine, you get yourself in a lot of trouble. And I really didn't want to get myself in a lot of trouble on hundreds of doorsteps in Dartmouth North. My name is Steve Estee. I'm running for the NDP hey. in Dartmouth North. Nice, to, nice to meet you folks. How yeah. are you this afternoon? Just fine. We heard that you had a nomination two days ago. Two long days, it's Two been. Long. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm deaf and I communicate using my friend here who types on her iPhone Very what you're good. saying. Oh, this, so is, this is excellent. I've never seen anyone text as fast in my life. <laughs> I came up with a very interesting approach. I was accompanied by a person, usually a younger person, who had a, um, an iPhone or some kind of a smartphone with them, and they would simply text what the what the people at the doorsteps were saying. So, so in the beginning, it was a, a kind of an intimidating process for me, but it became pretty easy pretty quickly. Got pretty accustomed to it. It was probably the first time they'd ever come face to face with a guy standing on the doorstep saying, Hi, my name is Steve and I'm running for the NDP. By the way, I'm deaf and my friend, person X beside me, is texting what you say. So I think a lot of times when politicians knock on people's doors, the people on the other side of the door go, Oh no, here's somebody else and I don't want to talk to them or whatever. But for me, my first line of conversation wasn't about running for politics. It was about the fact that I have a disability and I'm presenting them with this sort of accommodation. You know, in all the doors I knocked on, I can remember only one person who reacted negatively to me or reacted in a way that they were you know, it made it clear that they were uncomfortable with what was going on and so on. And so I, one person closed the door in my face. So I think, you know, really, that's not a bad track record. For guys. One of the barriers he faced during his campaign was the reality that the way he had to campaign was simply more expensive than the way other candidates would have campaigned. But- for most candidates, when they're out knocking on doors, they're doing it themselves and they've got a team of volunteers with them. So there's no cost to the campaign for that. But for me, for every hour I was out, there was a cost to the campaign. And I wound up having to raise that money over and above the money that I used for the campaign. So. No, I think a lot of parties recognize, for example, that when when women run, there may be cost attached to childcare because of the reality of the women's lives and so on. So a lot of campaigns will, or a lot of parties will set aside a certain amount of funds to offset those kinds of costs. And that that's certainly helpful. That principle, I think, is a useful one in terms of trying to create a level playing field, but it doesn't really recognize the fact that the cost of disability are significantly greater in some cases than they are for other people who require accommodation. So if you and I are both running uh, for nomination in Dartmouth North or wherever, you're a person who doesn't have a disability, I'm a person who does have a disability. The writing association looks at me and says, well, Steve's a great guy. We think he's lovely, yada, yada, yada. But it's going to cost us an extra $7,500 to run him. That's money we've got to raise ourselves. Then that becomes a burden on the whole writing association. And it really strongly discourages, at a grassroots level, the participation or endorsement of people with disabilities as candidates. 
So the added financial burden of running as a candidate with a disability was one of the challenges that Steve faced. But another barrier he faced was simply the fact that there were very few people with disabilities that he could turn to for how to support when he was joining a political party for the first time, running as a candidate for the first time, something that he saw as being critical for any equity-seeking group getting access to political power. So I'd never been a member of a political party, and I had deliberately stayed away from him. So when the, uh, when the NDP came to me initially and asked me if I'd be interested in, in running for the nomination. I said no, and it went back and forth for, for quite a long time around this. Finally, I made the decision to, to go forward with it. But then I started to think about you know, the barriers that you're going to face, and you know, I think that a lot of people that come from so-called equity-seeking community can look to other members of the community for mentoring to get some advice on how you do this, how if you're a person of color you overcome some of the the obstacles that you might face, how if you're a woman you overcome some of those obstacles. But for a person with a disability, there really aren't many mentors out there. People with disabilities are where women were in Canadian society 75 or 100 years ago, you know, in terms of political participation and all of these kinds of things. So 75 or 100 years ago, women running for office didn't have a lot of women to look to to say, how did you manage that? And that's where people with disabilities find themselves today. So that was a a kind of getting your head around that simply the fact that there's not a lot of folks that you can turn to to say, well, how did you do this? So that, that was a big barrier. But I think that really, you know, the biggest barrier that, that I face or anyone faces when they run for office is to come to terms with, with the, I mean, everybody's got barriers. Everybody's got challenges when they come into this thing. My, my barriers and challenges just happen to be a little bit more obvious probably than other people's, and that's okay. Were you ever discouraged? <laughs> Only by my wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. She was actually very supportive. No, actually, I, I think that really everyone that I know, both people that I knew personally and folks just in the community and in the party were actually quite supportive of the fact that I was running. Mm -hmm. Obviously not supportive enough at the end of the day, (laughs) but nevertheless, I was supportive. Um, It was pretty close. (laughs) That was Steve Esty speaking with Sandra Hannibom last week about his experience running and losing as a candidate for the NDP in the 2013 provincial election. Steve ran in the riding of Dartmouth North. The last person we spoke with for this week's show was Jerry Pye. Jerry was the NDP MLA for the riding of Dartmouth North in the early 2000s. He lives in Ottawa now, and he spoke with Louise Cockerham, the lead researcher for the Offscript Project, who also lives in Ottawa. Just a quick heads up that the conversation took place in a busy Tim Horton, so it's kind of noisy in the background, but we've done our best to clean up the quality of the recording. I will... Uh, in my particular case, I, uh, I grew up in an era and I was fortunate to have polyomyelitis, oh, well not fortunate, but I had, uh, had a, um, a crippling disability called poliomyelitis. 
and as a result of that, I I had disability in my right leg, and I I was able to navigate um, quite freely through um, municipal government and provincial government. However, I did need because. Uh, there was there, there there was a need to to recognize that I as a disabled person would need to expend more money, and I remember a scribe in a local daily news at one time uh, uh, making comment to the public that I and another individual had spent the most money in an election campaign, with the inferences being implying that that I bought my way in government, and as a disabled person, I didn't buy my way in. To government, I uh, I needed those resources because in order to meet the number of people, I had to expend more money than others. But I also had to raise more money than others. And I don't think the scribe of that newspaper put out the details or the information in such a way. So, so disabled persons have barriers not only in governments, but they have barriers in media as well. And media tends to cover them differently, or tends to condescend to them in a different way. People in small communities expect you to see them, expect you to meet on a stand on their doorstep and talk to them. And that's a, that's a given because after all, you're running for public office and many people may not know you, who, and who you are. And that it's your responsibility to meet them and let them see you face to face and they're able to identify. There's nothing more important than engaging with the voter. Uh, within the constituency's boundaries, there's X number of eligible voters, let's say 16, 17,000, as in my particular case, representing Dartmouth North. It's impossible for me as a disabled person to reach those individuals in a 30-day campaign, in a 36-day campaign, in a 45-day campaign. It's impossible for me to reach every one of those individuals. You can have you can have your kitchen table talk, you can have your you can have your fireside talk, you can have your community conversations and uh, have community meetings and so on, but that won't bring out all the people. And it's it's a determined it's it's a considered fact that um, that you um, must reach all the eligible voters you possibly can. Because if a voter says, I didn't see him or her on my doorstep, so I'm not voting for them. They didn't think that I was worthy of coming to see. It's impossible for a disabled person to do that. And therefore, there needs to be special considerations recognizing the difficulties that disabled persons have. In Jerry's experience, it's only once a person with a disability is elected that the place they are elected to begins to become more accessible to other people with disabilities. I think that the, I think that you, as a disabled person, if you're lucky enough to get elected or by happen chance get elected to, to a provincial, federal, or municipal legislature or, 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 or government, it's only then that they react to your need. Disabled persons couldn't even enter the legislature to watch the proceedings of the legislature because there wasn't space available for them until I became a member of the legislature for them to come in in the wheelchairs. In the gallery, gallery, in the public gallery. And in the public gallery, they finally allocated about, I think, spaces for about 10 wheelchairs. It's about 10 people. 
Jerry noted that the party caucus's offices are generally quite accessible, as they are in large office buildings with elevators that are well-managed. But when it comes to planning political events, which can happen anywhere, an eye for the perspective of people with disabilities is often missing from event design. Some of the, some of the barriers at events uh, are not taken into considerations by any political party. They will have an event, event and they will have a staging area, and often the staging area will not have a ramp or a walking place for disabled persons with disabilities. Walking and someone will get up and down those ramps. It's usually somebody helping you up, and that's always an embarrassing situation, no matter how you look at it. There, there are those kind of things. The way Jerry sees it, unless you're planning and explicitly thinking about how to make it accessible to people with disabilities, your political event is probably not going to be accessible to people with disabilities. The interior of the building, you know, these kind of things that happen, you have to be observant to see it. You have to be mindful of it to, to, to notice its deficiencies, the deficiencies in these, uh, in these kind of planning things. As someone who's been critical of the people responsible for keeping many of these and other barriers in place, Jerry has heard and anticipates the response of the well-intentioned who say they'd like to make things more accessible, but that it's too expensive. He says those kind of attitudes are actually the real barriers that make society inaccessible to people with disability. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an attitude that ought not to be existent in the 21st century. It's an attitude to justify your own actions as to why you're not doing something. It's an attitude that says, look, you know, we recognize that you're there and you're out there, but we can't do things as fast as you want them to be done. Implying that they know how fast you want them to be done. You know, it's those kind of attitudes that are the barriers. And it's that kind of thinking that are the barriers to being constructive when creating avenues for disabled persons to function freely in a society that's given to the most generous. In their conversations with Kevin Murphy, Steve Esty, and Jerry Pye, Sandra and Louise heard some strong messages about how to make politics and society in general more accessible to Nova Scotians living with disabilities. The first is that we all get something out of making our communities and politics more diverse and accessible, and we're all responsible for making it so. The beauty of diversity is it, 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 it takes all kinds to make the world go round. I think everybody benefits when everyone can fully participate in the community and, more importantly, fully contribute to the community. We all have a responsibility, as I have said to you earlier. We all have a responsibility, not only I as a disabled person, but everyone who can see me, who is in my image, who recognizes that. So what could, what could someone else do if you're a new MLA? And even though it's not, you don't face the same problems, you want to address those issues, what's the first thing? Well, I think uh, the very first thing is to make sure that, uh, that you know, you, you recognize within your own self, as we hope that every single person who's upright and, uh, and doing things in, in our community, in our province, in our country, is that you recognize people as people first. Not as, uh, not as uh, oh, look, there's a guy in a wheelchair. Uh, oh, and that's Kevin. But I want people to be able to recognize that uh, everybody is an individual. Uh, everybody has potential. Everybody has skills and abilities. 
And essentially, you know, the conversation that we all have limitations um, is a secondary thing. And uh, it's really important that uh, people in positions of, of holding elected office, people who are tasked with making decisions about policy and programs, that they recognize that everyone has the ability to make a contribution. <clears throat> and in many cases, we, being the collective we, need to figure out how to enable that person to to uh, to be the best person that they can be. It's all about realizing our full potential. Talk about Nova Scotia being a place that has an aging population, that has all of these kinds of socioeconomic um, challenges, if you will. And that's true, I don't deny that. But if you put people with disabilities on the socioeconomic challenge side of the scale, then it tips the balance even more. So accessibility is an enabling thing that can hopefully move people with disabilities from the negative side of the scale to the positive side of the scale. So that people with disabilities become contributing people in our society, are employed, are in schools, are, are you know, taking, taking a rightful role. And that's really what people with disabilities want. That's why I ran in the last election because I made my life around talking about the fact that it's important for people with disabilities to be included in things. The second take-home is that in order for our public institutions to be representative of the people those institutions are meant to serve, people with disabilities need to be in positions of political leadership. And one of the things that I realized a long time ago was the fact that unless you get people with disabilities in positions of political leadership, they're going to continue to be on the margins of things. Way, so, way, 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 way less than 1% of the persons that hold uh, provincial or federally elected positions are persons with physical disabilities. So right away you can see the gap. Less than 1%, 15%. Traditionally, it has not been the habit of, in Canada, of our uh, official parties of any color to, uh, to seek out qualified people from that demographic of persons with disabilities. But, I mean, I, I know lots and lots of persons with disabilities, not only from, you know, our, our community of, of Nova Scotia, but I know lots of people with disabilities across Canada, across the globe, that would make excellent elected representatives, in my opinion. And our job is to kind of create an environment that, uh, and I'll use the safe wording, that does everything we can to inspire them to consider it. Because it's, it is a job that's not for everybody. The third take-home is that when it comes to getting more people with disabilities into positions of political power, it takes more time and money for them to get elected, and that we probably should do something about that. Well, I mean, in other places it's happened, but not at the party level. It's happened at the, at the government level. Mm. So, for example, in England, a few years ago, they went through this same process and they set up an access to elected office fund. And if a person with a disability wants to run for a nomination at a local level or at a national level, because there's only two levels in England, 
they can apply, they can take the receipts for the disability-related accommodation and submit them to this office and have those reimbursed. Mm. Okay, so that kind of an approach, I think, would be very useful. I think that it would also take away the burden from an individual party. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any person with a disability would want to be perceived as being a burden on their party, you know. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Offscript, and thank you to Stephen Esty, Kevin Murphy, and Jerry Pye for participating in the interviews for this week's episode. Interviews were done by Sandra Hannebaum and Louise Cockrum. This episode was written by me, Mark Coffin. Uh, we'll be back with a new special episode next week, and in the meantime, consider going to offscript.ca slash donate and make a contribution to help us keep sending this podcast to that little device in your pocket. <laughs>